So there was a sheep wrangler on the hills of Idaho who had a violin. And he tried to play this violin, and as the, the, the weeks and the, the uh, months rolled on, his violin got more and more out of tune to the point where he couldn't handle it anymore. And as you can imagine, none of the sheep could either, because if you hear a violin played poorly, let alone out of tune, it's a disaster. So he then um, realized that he needed a, a note to tune his violin to. And try as he could, he couldn't tune his violin. He needed a reference point. And so what he did was he wrote to a local radio station that was um, 100 or so kilometers away in the, the nearest city. And he asked them if at a specific day, at a specific time, they might silence everything else and play a note, a single note, that he could tune his radio to. And so they wrote back to him and said, we would love to do that. And so this specific day, time, moment came. Everything was silent. And this one note just rang out through the hills. And he was able to tune his guitar, his, guitar, his violin to it, and was able to play again. Worship of Jesus is the note we need to set our lives to. When it rings out, it... We need to align ourselves to that, to, to give in to that, to allow ourselves to be conformed to that, be moved by that, to be empowered by that. It's the note that we need to heed when we're on the deserted hilltops or deep in the valleys or in those desolate plains or in the dark nights and the lonely places. Worship of Jesus is the note that we need to set our lives to. And when we do, the cell doors begin to open. And the chains fall from us and freedom is tasted and we are somehow transformed. Richard Foster, who is, a, a, who is an author and writes about spiritual disciplines, he says this, If worship does not change us, it has not been worship. Ooh. If worship has not changed us, it has not been worship. And today we're going to look at how worship not only changes us, but it changes everything. It changes everything. Because if worship does not change us, it has not been worship. Now we've been encouraging everyone to read um, uh, the new, through the New Testament. And we're just going to put up a link if you want to um, join in with that. Um, and so it's a reading plan that we're going to take a year to read through the New Testament. We're halfway through the book of Acts at the moment and we're, and we're cruising along. And it's been amazing to see people sort of gain momentum with this and sort of pick up the Bibles for the first, for many for the first time in a regular fashion. So that's, that's kind of what we're wanting to implement these, these disciplines in. And then there's an avenue on the app. So we use Uversion Bible app. You can also grab a, a paper copy there. But if you're on the app, um, there's an option, opportunity to leave some uh, comments. And so you can make a comment. What's God saying to you? What questions do you have? So here's what I want to do. If you're not doing this, challenge one, start to do it. If you are doing it, challenge two, Leave a comment this week. If you've not left a comment before, if you're one of them, and I know there's a bunch of you, and I know you love reading everybody else's comments, but you go, I don't have anything to add. You do. So challenge two, if you haven't left a comment, leave a comment this week. Don't do a funny, irrelevant one. I'll appreciate it, but we, it won't help us as a community, right? So, so lead a, um, a, a, leave a comment. It might be a question or something God's saying to you, or a reflection on the, on the passage. And if... If you've done that already, if you're sitting there going, oh yeah, it's going to be a good week, no more challenges for me, I want you to respond to somebody's comment. 
doesn't matter what it is or what you say, but to respond. Because it's this online platform where we have the chance to encourage one another and actually engage. Now, we do that in small groups. I'm sure you do it in conversations that you have with different people. But we have an opportunity to, to sort of build some momentum into this. Because as we comment back and forward, it creates space for the Spirit to speak to us. And to renew us and to challenge us and to cause us to think in a different way. So I just want to challenge you to, to take another step into that space of developing this discipline and what it means. So if you have been reading it, on Monday you would have realized or you would have read Acts 16. Or maybe you got to it yesterday, but it doesn't matter, right? You still got to it. So Acts 16, and we're going to look at it from verse 22. And the background to this story is fascinating. There's, there's Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's gone like a maniac through the, 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 the world, literally sharing the gospel and bringing people to faith, and God doing incredible things. And as he goes through, he upsets some people, and he pulls some people close by him, say it's him and Silas. And they're cruising along, and they're in the city of Philippi. Philippi was the, he wrote, later wrote the book of Philippians, or he, he wrote a letter to the Philippian church that we call the book of Philippians. Um, and, and they're on their way to the place of prayer. So you think, oh yeah, so they're like coming to church, they're moving into this mindset of we're coming to give God thing. And as they do this, they realize that a woman, a young girl, that's been hanging around kind of their movements for the last little while, is kind of reaching a fever pitch. Now, what she's talking about is the fact that these two men are men of God. So you read it and you're like, Paul, what's the problem? That's great. But here's the problem, right? Think about if you had a nemesis. Someone you didn't trust, someone that just disagreed with everything you, you, you had, someone that, that took every opportunity just to say you were wrong and that they were right. And then one day, that nemesis decides to say to their audience, oh no, you should, uh, you should follow them. Yeah, no, what they're on about is the right thing. Would you trust that that was necessarily the case? You'd be a little bit cautious. And so what happens was this, this woman is, is starting to, to kind of build up a sense of excitement, not actually about Paul and Silas, but about the fact that if it's coming from my mouth, you just shouldn't trust them. And Paul gets to the point where he's like, I've got to deal with this. So he says, just hang on, walks over and casts the demon out of the woman. And she's free. She stops talking. She's like, oh, goodness, she's free. Which is wonderful for her. Not so good for her master. See, the master was making a lot of money because the demon inside this woman was predicting the future for people and was carrying on, was creating a lot of money. And so when Paul intercedes into this situation, it's like a stock market crash for the master, right? All of a sudden it's, huh? Like the price horses just died on the racetrack, right? That's, that's it. It's all done. And so this, um, this master has a fair bit of um, a bit of hype, a fair bit of clout, fair bit of influence, and goes about and says, "Oh, well, that's not on. I need to punish these guys." So speaks to the authorities. The authorities arrest Paul and Silas, strip them, beat them, and throw them into prison. They're Roman citizens, right? You don't ever do that to a Roman citizen, but that's what happened. Stripped, beaten, thrown into prison. The text actually says this. This is verse twenty-two of Acts sixteen. The crown crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So, they were stripped. 
They were humiliated. They were made to be vulnerable. Everything they had was taken from them. They were beaten. So they were physically hurt and tormented. They, they, they had actions done against them that was meant to um, create fear. They would have been a sense of anxiety and angst in this whole situation. And then they were thrown in prison. They were cut off from their freedom. They had no idea how long they were going to be there. They were isolated, confined, and all unjustly so. Do you ever feel like that? Humiliated? Too vulnerable? Made to feel vulnerable? Poor? In need? Hurt? Injured? Sick? Fearful? Anxious? Denied freedom? Lonely? Trapped? See, as we discover more and more of where Paul and Silas are, we're also reminded of where we have been, or perhaps maybe where we are right now. See, Roman prisons were built in a circular fashion. And you put the, the, the most notorious, the most dangerous prisoners in the center cell. So there was a center cell and then these other cells that were around. And so the center cell was called the inner cell. So Paul and Silas, we know, were put in the inner cell. So they were put in the cell where you put the most dangerous and notorious prisoners. Not because they were dangerous or notorious. The Romans weren't phased by them at all. But they were kind of sick of this little Jesus rebellion. It was starting to muck things up. And so they're like, all right, we've got this opportunity to make a spectacle of them. If we punish them like this, it'll cut it off. It'll calm them down. It didn't quite work, right? Because we're here today. And so... So they, they put him in the inner cell. They fastened them in stocks, which is a plank of wood with two holes that your ankles would go into that would force you to stand up. So you would be stand up. You would be chained to the floor. You'd be standing in this in a rat-infested, wet, cold, stinking, miserable, dark, dark inner cell. When we get that picture and we go, I, I, I don't know what that feels like physically, but sometimes spiritually and sometimes emotionally, sometimes psychologically, I, gosh, there might be elements of that that I can really relate to. Because life can sometimes get that way. You know, when everything just feels like too much. When your mental health is just not where you want it to be and it's betraying you. When the kids are always a strain, it's like, oh, I'm doing my head in. Is this ever going to end? When sickness won't leave, when you lose your job and you can't find work, when you feel alone, when you feel lost in life, whether it's an inner prison cell in Philippi or a metaphoric prison cell on the Gold Coast, it's pretty similar, right? We can feel the same. So watch how Paul and Silas respond. This is is beautiful. About midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prisons were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. These men who have blood-soaked bodies, flesh-shredded backs, standing in the dark, imprisoned unjustly, shackled in stocks with aching legs, choose not to curse the authorities, Choose not to question their call or become embittered by the circumstance or lash out at injustice. They choose to worship Jesus. What? They made that choice. And it's infectious. See, they were the people in the prison that you'd be like, oh, they're good. The other prisoners in the prison, like, not so good, right? But they were listening in. They were drawn into this thing. What is going on? This isn't the way you respond. What have they that we don't have? 
and becomes infectious. He caught the attention of the other prisoners. And it's no wonder that they listened under the circumstances. It also helped that the Romans had been very generous by putting them in the middle cell so everybody could hear. Right? It was like stereo sound. But their worship reorientated them in the situation. It transformed them. Even in shackles, they were free. That's beautiful, right? Even in shackles, they were free. Jesus Christ reveals himself to us as the option toward whom we should direct our worship. He's so wonderful. He's so tenacious and passionately loving toward us. It's, it's so incredible, the gift that he has given us. He's so desiring that we be free despite our shackles. That he positions himself to receive our worship, knowing that as we worship him, we are somehow radically changed. See, any other idol that we worship takes something from us. But when we worship Jesus, he gives everything to us. Worship of Jesus, it restores the joy of our salvation. Worship of Jesus beckons us into salvation. Worship reestablishes in our lives what Jesus has done. And what has Jesus done? We talk about it every week and we'll keep talking about it every week because it's so amazing, right? He exchanged his life for our death on a cross. He tore down the divide that was between humans and man that required the ultimate sacrifice to do that. And he did it. He paid. He gave himself as that sacrifice. He hung on a cross. And as he was lifted up in a very different way, we might be lifted up too. That's what worship is, is lifting up Christ. And Paul and Silas, they act on this truth. They worshipped and the earth's very foundations shook. you imagine that? They'd be like, oh, this is going great. Let's keep going. We'd be like, ah, run for the door frame. The prison doors flew open. The chains, the, the chains, the shackles that were binding them, they fell off. Worship in prison led to freedom in life. The last thing we want to do when we feel like we're in prison is worship. And it needs to be the first thing we do because God leads us to life through that. A few years ago, Linda and I, we were in New Zealand. And, um, and we, it was just after the Christchurch earthquakes. And so we went there, and you could tell that it had just happened in that, in that country. It was quite staggering. There were um, people who, you, everyone you spoke to had a different story. The building still had large cracks. There was a church that had a crack from the bottom of its foundations right up to the top. There were places fenced off. There were piles of rubble. There were people wearing I Survived, the Christchurch um, earthquake t-shirt going on. And you're, you're in this place that feels quite surreal, that the earth shook to the degree that it's pretty much... It had pretty much dismantled a city and while we were there there was an earthquake that happened so i remember coming out um i got i've been reprimanded for telling this story so i'm going to tell a little bit differently um but I, we came out going to dinner one night and i'd i enjoy a little bit of risk i enjoy a little bit of excitement and so i may or may not have said to lindell wouldn't it be exciting if we if we were here when there, when there was an earthquake yeah it's terrible isn't it and so, so, so this then happened. We, we walked out of the hotel room into the corridor and all of a sudden it started to move. And you're like, oh, this is weird. It's like sitting on a chair when someone's shaking you or being in one of those um, uh, uh, machines that kind of simulate certain experience. And then you realize everything is shaking. And then you realize it doesn't stop. So it keeps 
going and this shake and, and all of a sudden you think, oh, oh wow, this is actually happening. We're not, we're not safe, right? And so um, you kind of stand under a door thing and you're in this moment going, we're at the mercy of creation. We're at the mercy of something so, so much bigger and, and there's nothing you can do. You, you can do what makes you safe, but, but that's it. And so after three, four, five minutes, the shaking kind of subsided. And the people that live there are just like, happens all the time. It's just, it's just what, we, what we live with. I tell you this story because according to Scripture, when God is freed to move, he can move with the same power that shakes the earth. It's sometimes hard to define what God's power is and how powerful God truly is. But when you stand in the middle of an earthquake, and this was a tremor, right? But when you stand in the middle of an earthquake, that's what our worship can usher in. Our worship taps into this earth-moving power that cannot be resisted or stood back from by any other force. In fact, our, our worship is, is our best defense and it's our best de- attack against spiritual enemy, the devil. Which I probably need to apologize to Karen and to Lyndall and to Zari that I'm teaching on this. Like when, when that, those news and, and a few other new bits of news came in, I'm like, oh yeah, it's kind of my fault. Because we're talking about this. I know <laughs> the devil's not going to be happy. See, worship is our weapon of spiritual attack that all of us have. Each of us have. And when we bring it out, when we sing songs of praise to God and songs of truth about God, the enemy literally quakes in fear. Of course, of course the enemy doesn't want that to take place. And the walls come down and the doors fling open and the chains fall off. Worshipping Jesus changes everything. You see, in the same way that individual worship leads us to a new experience of God's presence, corporate worship does that on an extravagant level. And not just for us. When we come to worship together, we are just we are not the sole beneficiaries of that experience. You see, worship when we worship together, it moves us moves us from being about us to us being about God. It's a really powerful and significant thing. Corporate worship enables God to move in significant ways that only worship enables that he cannot do if people don't come together and worship. The, the power that is, God is able to be unleashed in us is so much more significant if we all worship sitting here than if we all go home and worship at 4 p.m. on a Sunday. There is something significant that happens with God's people worship with one another. Your worship of Jesus is actually an act of love and mission and evangelism. That's cool, right? So we, so we worship God because we love those who don't yet know God. No, I'll explain how that works. Imagine Paul and Silas. They're in prison. Like, what, what, what on earth happens now? And they're thinking about their backs and the blood that's dripping. And they're hungry and they're thirsty. And they're wondering if anyone knows where they are or if anyone will ever find them again. And, and, and the hopelessness of prison and the injustice that can breed bitterness. They're in that space. And then one of them starts to just, 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 just mumble, mumble, mumble some words of faith. And, and, and to hum, hum, 
against the, the policies, against the leadership of Sosescu and what that would do as, as Sosescu was just bent on stripping people of their human rights. And so Tote stood up and he would preach against this. His words started to be heard, but not by the people, just by the people that he wanted to hear them. He, they were starting to be heard by the, the politicians and by Sosescu's men and started to create a lot of stir. And so the bishops of the church, right, the bishops of the church, ordered Totes to stop. The bishops of the church ordered the pastor of the church to stop. But Laszlo was not convinced. He's like, I'm not stopping. Unless this stops, I'm not stopping. So he continued to preach. The situation escalated to where the church bishops demanded that he stop or be evicted from the church, from his home. We're done. He refused. He said, nope, not going anywhere. We're going to keep preaching the gospel going to keep preaching the human rights for people, going to keep doing that. And so then the bishops called Sosescu's henchmen in to intervene. And what followed was several years. This wasn't just a weekend job. What followed was several years of Laszlo and his wife being denied electricity to their home, for the phone line being cut off, and then being reinstituted, and then receiving death threats, and then being cut off, and then they were billed for the long-distance calls that the death threats took. Um, They were put through numerous interrogations, um, and one night some thugs broke into the house whilst they were asleep in their beds and trashed the place. But they still continued to preach. To anyone that would listen, at every opportunity, they continued to preach against the sesku. Laszlo responded by turning to the authorities. He went to the authorities and said, What is going on? This surely can't be allowed. And they said, um, they said, actually, it is allowed and you need to be out of your home by December 15. On the night of the 14th, day before, Laszlo peered outside the window through the curtains and he saw a group of people at his front gate in a human chain across the front um, of his property. They were people from his church who turned up to stand with him and stand alongside him. By morning, the, 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 the number had more than doubled. It started to extend down the street of people that said, this is, we will not tolerate this anymore. By afternoon of the 15th, when he was supposed to be evicted, the crowd had again multiplied. The mayor appeared on the scene and instructed the crowd to disperse or water cannons would be brought in to disperse the crowd. It only caused the crowd to grow. By 5 p.m., the crowd um, had started to join together in song. They'd stood and now they began to worship. It was unscripted. There were no words. There was no PowerPoint. There was no nothing. They just sung the words of their, their heart, the words of their forefathers, the words of the church. They sung and worship began to spread. Until this crowd, this massive crowd that went for the, as far as the eye could see, was singing these songs of worship to God. The following day, the crowd grew again and the water cannons did come. And they were turned on and then the crowd turned on them and dismantled the water cannons. The growing crowd then turned their attention and their chanting and their worship and their singing on Sosescu's um, uh, point of office and they marched onto it. They marched down from where Laszlo lived all the way through to the city square where Sosescu had set up his office in the Communist Party headquarters. The singing and the hymns and the worship increased. It, it reached the attention not just of that current government, but of the world. 
And because of that and the embarrassment of it, Sosescu responds in force. The military are called in, they open fire on the crowd, and records state between 50 and 1,000 people were killed that day as a result of this, this siege in the city centres. Many, many bodies were taken away and cremated. Many, were, many more were buried. But the people continued to come. They continued to flock and they continued to sing and they continued to worship. And gradually the prison doors that had held this whole country in began to unlock and fall open. And as the country began to get news of the, this insurrection, as it began to, to get out, and United Nations began to take, um, take a note of what was happening, and the media began to take hold of this, things started to shift. And Sosescu was then overthrown, and three days later, he and his wife were executed. The power of worship, right? It overthrows powers that we go, that is unthrowable. It, 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 it makes changes that we think are impossible. And how? By us coming before God and going, Jesus, I just, despite my shackles, despite my prison cell, despite everything else, despite the injustice that's been done and the fear that I have, despite it all, I will worship you. And we will worship you because we have faith that as we worship you, you will do what you want to do and you will pour out your spirit in this place and in this town. That was just 30 years ago. That's it. Just, it wasn't a 2,000 year old story. It was just 30 years ago. It's like in our, in our lifetime. Many of us, some of us. That shows how old I am, isn't it? Worship is a weapon that brings liberation. It ushers in salvation of people. Worship changes the perspective we have on ourselves and the world around us. It's the note we set our lives to. It's our best form of attack against the enemy. Worship tears down walls and causes chain cells to fall, to chain, chains to fall off and opens prison cell doors. Worship is not a luxury of the Christian faith. It's a necessity. It's a command. It's a command. It's an act of obedience that we partake in and it changes the world. Because it ushers in Jesus' lordship. Worship is not limited by any external factor. It's limited by us. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship, because God is worthy of worship, and Jesus is worthy of worship, and we're going to bring ourselves to God, and we're going to worship, and as we do that, someone can duck upstairs, thanks Megan, grabs the kids, let's pray. Lord, we're reminded again of the power it is to put you on your throne, that you literally inhabit the praises of your people. Your presence comes to be upon us and around us. Your, your presence works within us. And Lord, we hunger for that. We so desperately want that. We want to be your people. We want you to be our God. And we thank you that just the mere act of worshipping you ushers us into that space. And so Lord, now as we worship, as we cry out to you, be glorified, be uplifted and may your kingdom come. And we pray this in your powerful name. Amen.